Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. We have a great episode for you today. We actually have a former player on the podcast and Jacob Turner, who was a first round pick in 2009, number nine overall in the draft, signed for a, a then record for high school pitcher, I believe $5.5 million and, you know, had a, a MLB career, played several years in the big leagues, played actually over in Korea and has since now retired and transitioned um, into the, uh, the, I guess you would call it the real world, but he's, he's an entrepreneur. He started um, a company called JL strategic wealth. And uh, that's a company that him and his brother started. He talks a little about it in this episode, but the main takeaways that I think are, are so important for, for those listening in this episode is when you listen to him talk about, uh, you know, making adjustments on the mound as a pitcher, um, you know, he talks about uh, how he was chasing a, a certain feel for, for different parts of his career when he had success early on. And I think it's, it's different tips like that, that you just, you can't find anywhere else um, on the, on kind of the mental side of the game. Like it's one of those things you really have to have played it at the highest level and for an X number of years to, to gain that kind of insight. And so if you're somebody who loves baseball for one, but also is interested in, in pitching, pitching development, coaching pitchers, or maybe you are a pitcher yourself, it's it's so important to listen to someone who has has played and pitched at the highest level and, and done so for several years. And I think it's even more important to have somebody like Jacob on who has done, you know, pitched very well for, for one particular season in the major leagues and then, you know, had his ups and downs the rest of his career too, because he, he's able to see both sides of it. So I appreciate Jacob coming on. And, and, you know, at the end of the podcast, we, we talk a little bit of business and a little bit of entrepreneurship. And as I mentioned, him transitioning now out of baseball, um, but make sure to give him a follow on Twitter. It's at the sudden wealth on Twitter and um, puts out some great content on there and appreciate again, him coming on the show. Uh, if you have not already, please make sure to, to subscribe to on, on iTunes to the podcast um, if you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. And also write us a short review on iTunes. So if you just leave a five-star rating and write a short review, it'll literally take a minute. And it helps out the show so much because it helps iTunes and the way the algorithm works start showing it to more and more people so we can get more coaches and parents listening, which in turn will impact more players. So please make sure to, to write a review and, and leave a five-star rating on iTunes. Ladies and gentlemen, here is now my episode with Jacob Turner. All right, Jacob, we are now live uh, recording on the show. I appreciate you coming on today, and um, I got a lot of good questions for you, man, so I'm excited. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Patrick. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So you've you played in the major leagues, and you know now you're outside of baseball, which I'm sure we'll get into later on. But you know, you I think I believe you made your MLB debut in in 2011, and then you finished in Korea in 2018, or was it 2019? 2019. 2019. If you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice from like a pitching standpoint, what would it be to a young Jacob Turner just coming up through the system? From a pitching standpoint, it would be really trying to understand what your process was as fast as you possibly could. I remember when I first got drafted coaches, I remember my coach in low A, he had this like little checklist where every pitcher had to come up with their own process. 
And what he meant by that was, what is your process in between starts? What is your process in the day of the games? At the time, as an 18-year-old kid, I was like, I don't really understand what the point of all this is. Mm -hmm. And then as you start going through professional baseball and you start playing more and you start developing, you know, scars from bad performances, you start having those highs from good performances, you want to have some sort of middle ground where, hey, no matter what the performance was, I know if I go back to this five-day routine or I go back to this routine the day before I pitch, um, I'm going to have confidence when I'm out there pitching. Yeah, I think that's something that I see too. It's having a, you know process-based mindset versus just being solely results-driven, and and how that can help players uh, so much because you're not necessarily worried about the 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 day-to-day ups and downs. Which I'm sure, as a pitcher, you know, when you only get to pitch, you know, maybe once a week if you're starting you, those other four days, if you didn't if you didn't pitch good that you know that one start. And that can be probably a, a very long four days. What's what? What was your mindset, or how did you help uh, keep your keep your energy level pretty neutral on those after those starts where you didn't do so well? Because that's something that I don't hear a lot of pitchers necessarily talk about, or even pitching coaches. But that I mean, I would assume that has to wear on guys. Yeah, well, you're spot on. There's no there's no better day as a pitcher than the day after you have this great start because there's not a ton you have to do. You know, maybe you're doing a workout, but you're done before the game starts. You know, you have two hours. You're there at the game. You're soaking in the game. But at the same time, you're feeling really good about yourself. Like, I just went seven shutout the night before. All my pitches are working. I have another three days to kind of bask in my glory, so to speak. Now, on the flip side of that, when you have the bad start, the day after feels terrible. You're like, the last thing I want to do is go grind for the next four days to maybe have the opportunity to get my teeth kicked in again. So it goes back to that same point about process. It's having that process in place that can give you the confidence that no matter what the results are. Because I think the biggest mistake that I see young players make that even, even big league guys make is they change what they're doing because the results aren't there. And maybe they're right there. They're right on the cusp of it. And the example I would give is it's it's 32 degrees to get an ice cube to melt. But if you stop doing what you're doing at 31 degrees, you never see the results of it. Mm. So like if you're a hitter and you have this great process and you've been kind of coming out of a slump and all of a sudden you're absolutely crushing balls, your exit velocity is up, but you've hit six line drives right at guys and you're 0 for your last six. And you're like, you know what? I think I'm going to change my process. Like, no, 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 we want to stay, we don't want to stick with the same process. And it's the same way for a pitcher. If you go out there and you're executing your pitches and you give up a couple blue pits and you make one bad pitch and the guy hits a three run homer. And now all of a sudden that's the tipping point between a good start and a bad start in your mind. You really need to go back and reflect on one is my process good. And two, am I doing what I want to do to execute out there? Because in baseball, like much of life, there's things that are just outside of your control. So we want to try to keep as many things inside of our control as we possibly can. Is there a time to change the process? Like what, what, when would be a time where you, you like, maybe, maybe I, I shouldn't stick to the process anymore. Yeah, definitely. I think if you have a couple starts in a row as a pitcher and you feel like, Hey, I'm not, it's not that I'm getting unlucky. It's not that every break seemingly has fallen the other way. It's that I'm, I'm just simply not executing or when I'm out there, I'm not feeling as confident as I want to feel because Ultimately, at the end of the day, a process is built around you feeling confident when you're out there. I don't care if your process is vastly different than mine. If you walk out there every fifth day and you feel like you're the best player on the field, then I would argue that you should stay with that process. And I've seen a lot of guys have different processes through the big league. Some guys 
do the prototypical. They're working out all the time. They're doing long toss. They're doing everything in between starts. I've seen guys that barely play catch in between starts, yet when they go out there on the fifth day, they're prepared, they're mentally ready to go, and they're confident, and they see the success of that. So I don't think one process fits all. Um, I would recommend working hard in between starts, but there's certainly guys I've seen that that do very little, and they go out there and have success. The year that that you did, I mean, you had a great year when you were 22 years old when with the Marlins. I believe you had a 4.43 um, FIP and a, a 3.74 ERA. Take me through. I, I want to know the, the difference between that year and maybe some some other years. What did everything just click for you that year? Because I mean, at the age of 22, I was coaching in Low A last year, and we had a couple guys who were a little bit older. You know, 21 even maybe even a couple guys who are 22. I mean, to be that dominant in the big leagues at 22 is that is impressive. So what happened that year? Yeah, I actually, it's interesting. You talk about that year. So that year, I I actually break it into two years. And I can remember at the end of the year, they showed like this highlight video and the highlight video. I was in the highlight video for the first half, like almost every star. Cause I've been doing so well, like the all-star break hit. And it was like, I was a completely different guy on the mound. I couldn't find myself. And a lot of it went back to, the, I think, that confidence on the mound. You know, I had pitched really well at the beginning of the year, and in a good way, things had been snowballing for me in a positive way, where it was every single start I'm going out there, I'm executing my pitches, I have this really good process in place, I feel really confident when I'm out there, and in turn, the results followed. When the All-Star break hit, I remember the start after the All-Star break, I can remember this super vividly, I was pitching in Milwaukee, and I'd taken a couple days off from throwing. So it wasn't my normal routine. I was out there and I was like, man, I just feel like my feet are underneath me. My mechanics feel off. I was able to grind through the start. I think I went like six innings, four runs. I might actually be right on that. I have this weird memory with baseball stuff, but um, maybe not with my wife all the time. So <laughs> I go like six innings, like four runs. So not a terrible start. Not great. I kept us in the game, but really it kind of snored snowball in the other direction after that, where I started changing my process and trying to get back to the same feeling that I had had previously in the year. I think one of the biggest mistakes that I made was trying to get back to a feeling that I had had before, you know, as a hitter or a pitcher, and this sounds weird for people that don't play baseball, but as a hitter or a pitcher, there's like that one feeling, that one swing, that one pitch where you're like, that's it. And if you can start replicating that same feeling over and over and over again, you're going to have a lot of success. I think one thing that, that players and I know for me, I failed to realize is sometimes you're never going to find that same feeling again, but you might find a new feeling that is like, oh, that's, that's my new normal. And like, I really like that. I'm going to stick with that. So that, that was what that year looked like for me. And, um, you know, I think between that year and, and a year that I, I really struggled, I remember, I think it was 20, 2013 or 2014, I had a really, really tough year. And a lot of that was, I was, I felt like I was searching the entire year for, you know, what was that feeling going to be? I probably didn't know myself as a pitcher as well as I would have liked to at that point. So I was leaning on other people, uh, whether that be coaches or other players to give me advice. I think sometimes that advice can start snowballing in a negative way because you start getting so many voices in there that, you know, somebody's telling you this and somebody's telling you this. And as a young guy, I didn't quite know what my process was to get back to where I needed to be. Man, this is why I wanted you to ha come on the podcast so bad because I, I have a lot of coaches on the podcast and scouts and at various levels, even MLB guys. 
but to hear it from a player and hear you talk about, you know, finding the feeling and, and searching for the feeling that's, that's content information for, for players. That's going to help them out so much. And you kind of, in a sense, have to play at that level to really have that insight. So I, that when you were saying that, I was like, this is incredible stuff that you're talking about right here, going back to, what you're talking about. So you said, and in, in, when you started struggling in, in 2013, 2014, you were searching for, you were trying to find that a new feeling or were you still trying to find that feeling that you had when you were dominant? Yeah, I, it was like, I was just constantly going back in my mind and, and thinking back to the times when I had had the most success, which I think can be a really good thing. But for me, where I ran into issues was instead of trying to find what my new normal was, what that new feeling might be. I was so focused on trying to find what the old feeling was that and realistically, like at that level, you might never find the old feeling again. I mean, I can remember being in games and for the first two innings, it was like, man, like if I can just get through this inning, it's going to be you know a good start. And then like, there would be like one fastball that I would throw in the third inning. It was like, Oh, that's it. And then literally for the next 70 pitches, I'm like just going off that same feeling. And I think to your point, Patrick, like you have to, play or have to have been around the game long enough to understand like when I say that feeling it sounds like like what is this guy talking about but like as a baseball player as a hitter as a pitcher like there's that feeling where like you had the perfect swing on a ball or you like throw that outside fastball and you just stayed on it perfectly and you're like that's it and for whatever reason like it just clicks in your brain and you're able to start repeating that over and over again man it's so good that's such good stuff right there what's it what's the biggest difference between facing big league hitters versus minor league hitters and i i'm, I'm sure maybe the you know the answer probably people would assume is just you just can't make the same mistakes but i mean is there anything else that's that's different about it or is that pretty much it for me there's a few things that are different so one the lineup is just so much deeper so from a holistic standpoint there's no time off if you're facing a double A AA or triple A lineup, there might be the, the guys from three to six where you're saying, hey, these guys could really do damage against me. But maybe I can kind of pitch around some of them in a situation. You know, if the six hole hitters up and the, the guy batting seventh has really been struggling and isn't quite to that same level, maybe I'm going to kind of pitch around him in the situation with the guy on second. You know, in the big leagues, the guy batting seventh for the Dodgers has made two all-star teams. So, you know, there's a there's a level of depth there that you don't see in the minor leagues. The other thing that I would say is that they just play the game at a higher level. And I don't mean the game of baseball. I mean, the internal game, mm. you know, they face you a few times. They've watched more video on you. They have more data on you. So when they're coming up to the plate, their approach is so refined. And on the flip side, you need to be so refined and say, Hey, I need to make sure that like I'm coming into this, coming into this battle for lack of a better term with as much information on them as they're going to have on me. Because if you think about in a minor league situation, you know, there, you know, the team might have a little bit of video. It might be kind of grainy. It's gotten better now. They might have some track man information, but for the most part, you know, it's kind of like, what does this guy throw? Okay. He's got a fastball slider change up. He's going to go to a slider, you know, with two strikes. That's kind of the scattering for it's like a versus in the big leagues. It's like, Hey, this guy, I faced this guy 20 times. He always keeps coming inside with a two seamer. And then you're trying to back it up with this cutter where it's very, their approach is so refined. The game is like just happening at a higher level. So it's understanding that like, Hey, when I come into battle and I'm out there on the mound, this guy at the plate is going to know as much about me as I know about him and having those internal battles when you're out there on the field. 
Is it easy to start overthinking things because of that? I think so. I, I can remember being in a pitcher's meeting before a game with Miami and the pitching coach was like giving us all this information, all great information, but it was almost overwhelming. Like the example I would give Patrick is for me, my curveball at the time was my best breaking ball. And I can remember them saying, well, this guy's good against curveballs, but he's bad against sliders. So then in my head, I'm thinking, well, I'm good, good with curveballs and my slider's just okay. So then what does that mean for me? And I do think you can start overthinking it. I would say as a pitcher, one of the best things that I tell guys is like, you got to go back to what you're really good at because you didn't get to the big leagues by having average pitches across the board. Generally, you had one really exceptional tool and that exceptional tool brought you to the big leagues. Use the exceptional tool. I think that's a, a this common misconception that I see is like, and even when I first got drafted, it was like become a well-rounded pitcher, which I certainly understand there's aspects of that. If I would tell a guy that was in low A, I was like, what's the best chance to get into the big leagues? It's creating one outlier thing that you do. One outlier pitch. It could be that you have outlier command. It could be that you, you know, have an outlier fastball. And I would just keep going back to the well. Yeah, be great at what you're good at. I mean, it's kind of similar to being, you know, what they say from the people that I've learned from as an entrepreneur, you know, just be really good at one thing. Like, don't try to do a million things at one time. Be locked in, focused, and be good at one thing. So I think that's that's very good advice. Um, wh what's your take on 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 right now? I know you've been out of the game for a couple of years now, but this was uh, starting to really become a trend towards the end of your career on just the the weighted balls, the velocity. Is that something that you ever got into? Just because you know, I know you ended your career in Korea, so. I guess my question is, you know, were you trying to ever think about, you know, adding some more velo to try to get back to the big leagues? Yeah, definitely. My my career kind of spanned the when I first got drafted in 2009, it was sinkers, it was get ahead with your fastball, it was establish your fastball. By the time I stopped playing in 2019, it was don't throw fastballs down, throw fastballs up. If you do throw your fastball, don't throw it very often, no matter how hard you throw. Throw tons of breaking balls. So it was amazing how the game shifted in those 11 years. I started using some of the weighted ball stuff. I started doing a lot of the long tossing stuff probably about halfway through my career because I started to realize that, hey, teams are valuing velocity and velocity will give you more opportunities. If I was a guy that was going out there and I was throwing 91 that year and I had a, had a tough year, I had an in-between year versus a guy that was out there throwing 95 that had the same year, the guy that's throwing 95 is getting more opportunities for the next year. You know, I know there's, there's some knocks on what velocity can, training can do and that, you know, maybe it doesn't make you a complete pitcher, but I think a lot of the stuff that driveline has done has been very data driven and I'm a numbers guy. It's hard to argue with the data. I went to driveline for the off season before I went to Korea actually with the sole goal of saying, I know that the only way for me to get back to the big leagues and have sustained success is for me to strike out more guys to bring things back into my control. If I can, you know, raise my strikeout rate and not have guys hitting the ball, I know I have a better chance of success. So I, I did some of that. It was an interesting journey to try to do that because some of my God-given ability, I didn't have the ability to spin the fastball like some of these guys do. So my spin rates were always below average. So it was, it was trying to find something that worked for me. Why did you stop playing after you were only 28 years old? Yeah. That's a great question. I, I can remember. So in 20, 2018, I had an interesting year. I made the team out of spring training with the Marlins. I had a really tough 
game in Philadelphia, I got released or I got sent down, I guess, designated for assignment. So I got sent to AAA. And I can remember just feeling so down on like, I, I, you know, my career had so many ups and downs and just emotionally, I was just drained. So I go to AAA, I'm pitching in AAA in 2018. And I ended up getting released from the Marlins in, in 2018 from the AAA team. And it was like kind of rock bottom for me. I remember calling my agent and being like, I think I'm just done. And he was like, you know, just like get drive home, clear your head. And on my way home, Detroit had offered me a contract to sign with them. And that was who I originally got drafted by. I knew a lot of people there. I felt like it was like a total godsend. I was like, you know, if I was going to go anywhere, this is like where I would want to go. So I had the opportunity to pitch there. And then in 2019, I had the opportunity to go over to South Korea. The opportunity was great for me because it allowed me to pitch every fifth day and allowed me to make some of those adjustments that I had been trying to make when I was at driveline and really see, hey, if some of these changes work out, can I become the pitcher that I think I need to become to get back to sustained success at the big league level? I went over there. I didn't have the success that I wanted to have. And I can remember on the flight home with my wife and my kids, I told my wife, it's like, I just think I'm done. And it wasn't that I couldn't keep playing. I had some offers to play, you know, some minor league offers to continue to play. I just felt like my heart wasn't in the day-to-day -day grind of it anymore. And what I would tell anybody is if you are in any high-level athletic event, uh, professional sports in general, if your heart's not in the day-to-day -day grind of getting better and doing the mundane things, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, to compete on Friday, you are going to have no chance at competing. And ultimately, I would just be doing myself a disservice. I'd be doing a disservice to guys who who should be taking my spot if I didn't have that same drive. What was it like playing over over in Korea? I had another guy on podcast, um, one of my buddies, Eric Surkamp, who's a little bit older, but you know he he enjoyed playing over there and pitching over there too. How did you enjoy playing over in Korea? Yeah, small world. I can remember. I don't know Eric, but I can remember in Double A, Eric had like some crazy amount of strikeouts. We were in Double A together. Um, so I can remember that, but Korea was great. I really enjoyed it. I would tell anybody that was in my position, which my position was kind of that 4A. I had been in the big leagues. I was back in AAA. If I pitched well in AAA, I might get an opportunity to make a few starts in the big leagues, but it was going to be really hard for me to reestablish myself in the big leagues based on what I did in AAA. And what Korea offered me was this opportunity to pitch all the time. If I did well over there, it was looked upon higher than if I did well in AAA. So from an opportunity standpoint, it was a lot greater. And the experience was really cool. You know, the life experience that that my family and I got, I went over there with three young kids. So there's certainly challenges that come with it. But, you know, there's so many things that we learned living over there for, and I was there for 10 months and understanding the culture and the language and the respect that they have for each other, just the way that they play baseball is different. And, and trying to adapt to all that in 10 months time is certainly unique. What was, what was one thing that you learned while you were over there? The biggest thing I learned is that people are ultimately good. I think in the world that we live in today with the 24 seven news cycle and the things that are happening in our world today, that sometimes, you know, it seems like human society is going downhill and I'm not going to speculate on that one way or another. But what I will say is that when I was over there, I did not speak Korean. I was in a city that there was very few people that spoke English. And there was a lot of times that I just needed help. I needed directions. I needed somebody to help me at the grocery store. And although I didn't speak the same language, there was people that were just willing to help. And they were willing to like help to see like that the result that I wanted at the grocery store, the directions got me to where I wanted to go. So 
I would say the biggest thing I learned was just that people are good ultimately. And if you, if you ask for help, they'll want to help. That's awesome. Yeah. I love, love hearing that. I, and I completely agree too. Um, you were drafted out of high school. I, I know you got, you know, good amount of, of money via signing bonus, which is awesome. Would you, would you let, you know, I know you said you have kids. I don't know if you have a son or not, but if you had a son, would you let him sign out of high school knowing what you know? The reason why I ask that is, I mean, having now, having coached in the minor leagues and especially at the lower levels and, and seeing guys right out of high school, it's so obvious that the guys who are drafted out of high school versus the guys who are drafted out of college, um, just from the maturity standpoint. Uh, so I'm just curious to hear your take on that. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in school. I got drafted out of high school. I signed for five and a half million dollars. You know, the Tigers offered me enough money that it was worthwhile for me to to turn down an opportunity to go to school. My I come from a family that is very well educated. My mom's a CPA. My dad was a doctor. So they believed in school really strongly. The only way that I was ever going to sign was if they offered me money that was truly life changing for us. And I felt like at the time it was. What I tell kids now is that you know, I recommend school unless the team commits to you so much that you feel like it's an opportunity that you can't pass up. Now, each each individual family, that's going to be a different number. That's going to be a different level of commitment for a team. You know, a million dollars is a lot of money. And if a, if a family feels like that's life-changing money to them, then I think they should explore it. But my thought on it is, unless you are a first round draft pick or you're signing for millions of dollars that's that college is almost always the best route it takes a really unique individual to go into that world at 18 years old and be able to compete to be able to keep moving up the ladder to not mess up on and off the field there's just so many things that are being thrown at you and as an 18 year old there's so much that you just don't know about yourself yeah, I, I I would 100% agree with that. I, a kid I had last year who's, who's now in the big leagues now was just a minor league player of the year, Gunnar Henderson. He reminds me a little bit of of kind of who you're talking about, of just someone who, who knows himself, who has that internal drive and confidence. And it's just you can't really teach that necessarily. And I don't even know if you really know if you have that until you get to, you know, you move away from home for the first time and – you know, I think it's definitely the safer route to go in college. And you're also going to start at a higher level, too, out of college if you get drafted. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you about is is the transition out of baseball. I think that's something that not a, not peop, not many people talk a, a ton about, but it's it's hard. Even even for someone like myself, who only played just a couple years of, of indie ball. Um, you know, it, it was difficult because your identity is tied to to the sport you're playing to, you know, for me, baseball, for you, baseball too. So what was that transition like for you? And, uh, you know, have you, do you know anybody else who's, who has struggled with that? The transition's not easy. The, the framing that I would give to anybody that's listening that maybe didn't play is imagine that you are solely focused on one thing for a decade plus, And then all of a sudden you're not doing that anymore. So if you're in corporate America and you've worked for 10, 15 years, you might be a partner at, whatever company you're working at, imagine that being ripped away from you and you having to start an entirely new career as the intern somewhere. And that's really what it's like. It's, you know, this concept of this is all I've ever known. And now I'm not going to be doing this. I think society does a a disservice to everybody because the first two questions that anybody asks are what's your name and what do you do? 
So the minute you're not a professional baseball player anymore, it's like, well, what, what do I do? And what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And whether you're, you know, Patrick, Jacob, or Max Scherzer, at some point, baseball is going to end. And you have to be prepared for what that's potentially going to look like. I was listening to you on a podcast on the on the way um, over to my cage this morning, and I, I heard you say that, you know, you worked for free, I believe, your first year after baseball. Can you can you kind of take everyone through what you did after you got done playing? Yeah, so when I got done, I guess my last two years, really, I knew, hey, baseball's probably going to be over sooner rather than later. My heart was starting to lean towards, you know, doing something else, and not only did I go back to school in that time, but I also just started pouring into people that were successful in business and trying to garner as much information as I could. So I was asking people to go to lunch if I thought that I had any interest in doing what they went, what they were doing. So I went to lunch with a guy that was in investment banking. I went to a lunch with a guy that did real estate development. I went to lunch with a guy that did multifamily housing. I went to lunch with a guy that was a financial advisor. And I'm just asking questions about, hey, tell me more about your story. Tell me more about, you know, your career path to get to where you're at. And for me, it really helped to clarify, hey, I love personal finance. I love the way the world works. I love understanding how people make money and how they spend money. And, you know, for me, ultimately, wealth management and personal finance was a, was a great fit for me. So when I got done playing, I actually called uh, the firm that, I had worked at um, as a client, worked with as a client for a while. And I just told them like, okay, this is what I want to do. And I, you know, I didn't need the money. I just wanted to get into the working world and understand the inner workings of what was going on. So yeah, it was a, it was a super unique experience for six months to go from Jacob, the baseball player to Jacob in a corporate setting. But I learned a lot and and I think it was really beneficial for me because I it also helped give me time to process what was going on in my life. You know, there's so much that's going on, and I felt like I was as prepared as I possibly could be, but it just takes time. It takes six to twelve months, in my opinion, to really start feeling like the ground is underneath you again. So what what was uh what did you do after that, after that year? I and mean, what at what point did you decide to to kind of do your own thing? Yeah, so I worked there for about eight months and about eight months in i i realized one i'm very entrepreneurial and two i just felt like hey i have i'm 31 years old now i have the rest of my life in front of me and i really enjoy building things i really enjoy helping a very specific group of clients so in 2021 my brother and i launched our own firm um, jail strategic wealth where we help athletes we help entrepreneurs and we help second generation wealth and Really, the tie-in there is that all three of these groups of people are experiencing this this feeling of, hey, I'm coming into a lot of money today, but I don't know what it's going to look like in one, three, five years. So a lot of the same complexities that I experienced when I originally signed in, in 2009 that, hey, I have a lot of money today, but you know, how big can I build my lifestyle and how much can I actually afford to spend and you know, how should I be a good steward of this money? Yeah, I think uh, that's that's definitely something that you know is interesting, and, and I assume you know from like an entrepreneur standpoint, it's probably someone who you know, had a startup and then it was it was acquired or they exited, and you know now have a lot of money and trying to figure out what they want to do next. Yeah, I, it's really interesting to see the tie-ins between an entrepreneur that that exits a business and an athlete that moves on from his career, because a lot of it's the same. You know the. The entrepreneur has been solely focused on what he's been doing for generally 10 to 20 years, maybe more. 
now he's potentially exiting this business and looking to do something else. And he might have a lot of money, but he's also trying to figure out, you know, what's fulfillment in my life look like now? Like, should I go start another company? Should I take some time off? And it's very similar to that athlete that has some success. And he's like, Hey, I, I don't have to go to work tomorrow, but I really got to figure out like, what does fulfillment look for, like for me for the next 30, 40 years of my life? Yeah, you don't. You, you it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't. You can't just lay around all day long and and do nothing. And I, you know, you've obviously met some very successful people in in business. I mean, what are some what are some things that stand out to you that successful people have? You know, just via traits versus everybody else. The one trait, uh, two traits, I would say. There's two traits. One is discipline, which I think as an athlete you kind of inherently start to build, but it's discipline to continue to do the things day in and day out, year after year, over and over again, when you're not seeing the immediate gratification or the immediate results of it. If you compared it to a baseball player and you said, hey, for the next five years, you're going to grind through the minor leagues and you're going to go to every single stop and you might get sent up and sent down a couple times. But at the end of the day, if you keep doing this, you're going to get a chance to play in the big leagues. And I think the entrepreneur world's the same, where there's discipline to continue to work when nobody believes in you, to continue to work when things aren't immediately working, to continue to work when you go to the Christmas party at the end of the year with your family and they're like, what are you doing again? And you're like, oh, I'm building this thing. And they're like, oh, that, that's cool. But in the background, they're like, what is he doing? And then like <laughs> 10 years later, they're like, oh, everybody wants to be your friend because like now you're a quote overnight success. So discipline's one. I think the other thing is confidence. You know, nobody's going to believe in you as an entrepreneur when you first start. And why should they? You haven't done anything. And I think you have to have the self-belief that if you don't believe in yourself, why would anybody else believe in you? Which I think is another trait that, you know, sports gives you. Ultimately, it's a team game, but you have to have confidence in yourself to be able to go out there on the field and deliver. Yeah, and I, I like uh, a lot of the stuff that you've been putting out on on twitter lately and and just from a financial standpoint and i think that uh you know we'll put we'll put your link you know at the sudden wealth on you know put that link up so people can follow you online but i i think it's hard and confusing for a lot of people to understand where to put their money and, and where to invest because there's so many things out there and people and businesses and news and they say all these things and you you don't really un understand necessarily what they're talking about or even some of the words that they're using and so it's hard to to follow but i like some of the stuff that you're putting out because it's it's pretty simple and you can you understand it right away yeah i call it uh financial advice for real life i think <laughs> one thing that i realized pretty quickly when I first signed and I had this financial team of people around me was that a lot of these words that they were talking about, nobody uses these words in real life. Nobody uses percentages to talk about their money in real life. They talk about dollars. Nobody talks about stocks and bonds in real life. They talk about like, oh, well, my money could grow or my money could not grow. You know, there's, so it's trying to simplify concepts and educate people. And my, you know, my passion with personal finance is I want people to be educated and make good decisions with their money. It's really hard to make a lot of money. And the last thing I ever want to see anybody happen to is that like they get in a situation where somebody doesn't have their best interests and they're telling them something that that is only in the interest of the the individual that's that's selling the product. Where do you where do you see yourself in the next five to ten years? I think I see myself leading a team. 
you know, that's the one thing that I'm probably most excited about, about our business as we continue to grow and look to continue to hire folks is building out a team and pouring into people and really letting them know that, you know, Jacob and, and Luke, my brother, my business partner, that we have their back and that we would do anything in our power to help them continue to get better. Because I think for me, one of the things that was a struggle in professional baseball is that it is such a business. And I understand that it's such a business, but I think sometimes as coaches and as leaders, they fail to realize that like, Hey, those are human beings. And like, they need like your support. And sometimes it's just like, Hey, like we should go grab breakfast. Cause I know you're like struggling on the mound and like everything else in life seems to be happening really fast. And I think for me, there was this concept of, I wanted to always feel like the coaches that I was working with had my best interest and really had my back. And we all know that, look, if you're a pitching coach, you want the starting rotation to dominate because if they dominate, you're going to look great and you're going to keep your job and you might get a new contract. Everybody knows that that's like an inherent part of just life in general, but the best coaches I had, I just knew that at the end of the day, they had Jacob's best interest and they really wanted to see me succeed outside of the, any personal gain they might get out of it. Mm, yeah. It's so easy to lose, lose track of that with, with everything else going on and everything go, coming going around you. And it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about the business side of baseball. Was there a moment when you realized like that, like how, like what type of a business this is when you were a player? For me, two moments. One was when I first got traded from Detroit. Yeah. You, know, you just realize the business side, you know, here are these people that I built relationships with that are all superhumans. I mean, the the organization there when I was there were great people, you know, Dave Dombrowski at the top, all the way down, great people. Yet I came in one day and they were like, Hey, we don't want you anymore. We think we have a better opportunity than these other guys. And that wasn't because like Dave or anybody in the organization was a bad guy. They were great people. It was just, that's the business side of sports. I think the other side was, I can remember reading a quote from uh, executive at one of the teams I was on and he mentioned players in terms of assets. And I was like, man, like assets, like, is that what we are is we're assets. And I think, look, professional baseball is a, is a business, right? Like if you don't perform, you, you shouldn't be there. And if you do perform, you're going to get paid like the top 0.00001% of people in the world. So this is not me complaining about professional sports. Like it's the greatest job in the world and you get paid like it and you get paid like nobody else gets paid to do it. So if you don't like it, you can always go do something else. But there is this element of, wow, that's this is really a business. And although like they might pat you on the back when you do well, when you don't do well, like, you know, you might get sent out the next day. <laughs> do you have a story of when they they how they how do they let you know i guess that you're being sent down or being released like what what's that process like because i don't think very many people even know yeah i'll use when you're getting sent down so if as a pitcher i'll use my own example at towards the end of my career i was the long man in the bullpen so that just simply means if the starter did bad i was the guy pitching the third fourth fifth sixth inning kind of eating up the game because we were already out of the game so i'm 25th guy on the roster if anything happens, Jacob's the one getting sent down. And I can remember pitching at Bush Stadium. I'm from St. Louis, so Bush Stadium's in St. Louis, like hometown team pitching against the Cardinals. Like, this is really cool. Family there. Starter struggles. I'm pitching. I've given up like four or five runs in like two innings. And I'm on the mound thinking like, oh, this is not good. Like, I might get sent down after this game. You know, on the mound thinking this. <laughs> so, like, I walk into the clubhouse. And I at that time, 
I'd been sent down so many times before, like I kind of knew the song and dance, like if the manager or the pitching coach comes out of their office and they're like, Hey, Jacob, can we talk to you for a second? You're like, you can just tell me, like, I don't need to come in there. We don't need to have the song and dance. And I remember, I can remember them calling me in there and I was, you know, I sit down and they say their piece. And, you know, I mean, ultimately, like I didn't perform the way I should have performed and, and I get sent down. So, you know, you pack up your stuff you get on the bus with the rest of the team and that might be the last time that you see them for the entire year. So it's just a, it's not a good feeling. I'll say that it's definitely not a good feeling when you're walking to the bus with your bag and you're like, yeah, like, and you, you know, you get to tell all your teammates and your friends that like, Hey, I just got sent down. What's the, uh, what's the biggest difference between the minor leagues and major leagues just from a lifestyle standpoint? Is it just the travel is just so much better? everything's better but the travel's better the experience is better it's a you're playing to win a lot of times you know I think teams have done a better job of it here recently but when I was in the minor leagues I remember meeting with remember our AAA manager at one time telling us like we weren't here to win and guys were like what do you you know like how are we supposed to come out here and compete every day if we're not here to win but at the end of the day, these teams are developing guys in the minor leagues to win at the major league level. So I think the biggest difference is like you're trying to win. And I think that that's the that's another reason why I tell people that you go to college, because like you learn to win in college. You know, you don't learn to win in the minor leagues. Yeah, that's awesome. That's good stuff. Jacob, I appreciate you coming on and doing this. I uh, I, I really hope you continue to do. Um, you know, kind of what exactly what you're doing right now and doing stuff like this. I just think it's so valuable to have uh, someone who who pitched in in the major leagues and had the journey that you had. Just speak about some of your experiences and and some of the stuff you were saying today, even earlier in the episode about trying to find the feel and 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 working you know day to day and things like that. It's just so beneficial for players, and I know that so many so many players and and even coaches will listen to this and find benefit out of it and. You're you're very well spoken to, which is definitely going to uh, serve you very well. And I'm glad we got to connect and I, I appreciate it. And I'm, I hope uh, nothing but the best for you, man. But I, I really appreciate you coming on. I know as an entrepreneur that your time is very valuable because, you know, there's always stuff to be to be doing. So we appreciate you. Uh, you giving us the time. Thanks, Patrick. I enjoyed the conversation.